We're talking about the search for success today, and we're going we're gonna to bounce back and forth a little bit between Ecclesiastes 2 and Ecclesiastes 4. So if you've got a Bible, great. If you've got an app on your phone, great. If you have time to download it real quick, do it. Uh, so um, we're going to bounce back and forth in, from Ecclesiastes 2 and 4. Uh, but I heard this interesting statistic this week about the U.S. You know, many of you know this, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We're the wealthiest country in the world, but yet we're the 15th. We're, we rank 15th in happiness. So I, I don't know where this survey came from, but I heard a couple different people talking about it. Wealthiest country, 15th in <coughs> happiness. Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a famous Baptist preacher, right? Many, many of you probably know the name, right? Uh, he had the boldness to tell his congregation one time uh, that he believed that only 20% of his congregation was actually saved, right? So I'll use some Christian language. If you're not a Christian, I'll try to break it down for you. But he was actually sa- that, that only 20% of his congregation was actually saved, meaning that Jesus had come into their life, had uh, created a transformation through the Holy Spirit, kind of regenerating and bringing them a new life. He said, I really believe that only 20% of you were actually saved. He actually believed that many were what, we, what he called disciples of culture rather than disciples of Jesus through the way they were living. And so he had the boldness to state that to them, out of love now for them, not just to handle them, but out of love, right? It takes a, it takes a lot of guts to make a statement to your church like that. But he thought that they were, he was calling them out uh, distinguish between disciples of culture and disciples of Jesus. And so I want to pose this question for us, and, and this is where we're going to start. And you guys are going to do this around your table. So this is going to be an experiment. We're going to see how we do with this, all right? Three to five minutes, really, just at your tables or a couple people, just have some conversation around this. What is success? And how would you define that? Um, is there a difference between cultural success and, and what the Bible would, would uh, describe as success? What are some scripture verses that you could use to back that up or have some conversation around? So I want you guys to take three, five minutes, right? And I'll bring you back in in about five minutes. Just have some conversation around it. What is success and how do we define that, both culturally and biblically? We get, uh, the writer in uh, Ecclesiastes, one scholar I was reading, he, calls him, uh, he, he kind of attributes him to what, what he calls a, a practical secularist. And so what I think that means essentially is this. The writer in Ecclesiastes, he's put himself in this position to say, look, I've searched for meaning through all types of different avenues of life. I've searched for the meaning of life. I've searched through wisdom. I've searched through pleasure. I've searched through uh, honor uh, and fame and and recognition. And he finds that it's all meaninglessness in in Ecclesiastes. When he decides, hey, listen, I'm going to let work be the, uh, the organizing principle through which I build my value system around in life. I'm going to create a, a works-based life. I'm going to make work and the pursuit of success, the organizing principle, uh, value principle in my life. You're going to find, too, we're going to find together that, that, that he says that a life of work is essentially meaningless as well. A life of toil around career and success and achievement and work is actually just as meaningless. And so that's kind of like where we're going this morning is that a life of work that drives us is essentially going to fail us. A life of work that, that, that seeks success by cultural terms, by Western terms, is actually going to fail us in a lot of ways. And there are three things that he finds, the, the writer in Ecclesiastes. First, he's going to find that a life of work is not worth it. He's going to tell us also why it's not worth it, but we're also going to see, even in Ecclesiastes, um, what is worth it, too. There, there is something that is worth it. So... Let's jump right into a life that's not worth it, a, work, a life of work that's not worth it. Uh, this is kind of his summary statement. If you look at chapter 2, verses 18, verse 18, he says in Ecclesiastes, I hated, I'm reading from the ESV, but I'll bounce back and forth between the English Standard Version and the, and the NIV. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
verse 19, and who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. If you go back earlier in the chapter 2, he says, I, the writer go, basically says, I, I undertook all these projects, right? Like, so I, I, I made buildings, I, I built houses, I made gardens and parks, I, I made reservoirs, I did all of these things. I amassed a bunch of money, silver and gold, I had wisdom, I had a bunch of stuff. Now, there's some of us who, who sit in the room right now, we don't have the capital to make those types of things happen. Like, we don't have the capital resources uh, within ourselves uh, to basically say, hey, I can go, like, make parks, and I can go uh, build just houses and, and do... And some of us do in this room. Some of us have the ability and the capital built up to be able to do some of the stuff that the writer in Ecclesiastes just <clears throat> described. But what happens with this guy? He says, I toiled under the sun. And what he's really beginning to show us, what he's going to show us even in this, is that success on its own terms through a life of work fails itself. It's a failure. Success on its own terms is a failure. You ever ask the question, like, why am I working? Like, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why even bother? Why, why do I do this? What's the point? What's, what's the point in this? Why go through all the hell and the pain of work, of grinding it out day after day, getting up at five, going to work, coming home 12 hours later, not getting great sleep, not, not taking care of myself physically or spiritually or emotionally, not feeding myself well, not pouring into my family. Like, why do I go through all the hell and the pain of work? What's, what's the point in all of this, right? Well, for many of us, there's, there's hopes of achieving success, right? There's hopes of achieving success uh, through the way that our, our culture uh, describes or defines success, right? That's, that's kind of what drives many of us in, in our work, right? And so there's, there's three things that I think we want our work to accomplish for us. And I, man, wrestled a lot with this this past week, and all, the, all three of these things apply to my very own life. But as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, like all three of th these things, like these are big idols in my own life, right? So three things I think that, that a life that, that pursues work and, and, and um, success, hopes of achieving cultural success, there's three things that uh, we're going to see here, and it's this. We want our work to bring us satisfaction. We want our work to bring us recognition. Or we're hoping that our work will, will somehow leave some sort of lasting legacy. Right? So we want our work to bring us satisfaction. We want our work to somehow bring us some sort of recognition around what we do. Or we want our work to somehow leave some... We want to know that our work is making a difference. We want our work... To, we want to know our work is leaving a legacy essentially. And these three things that prove to us a life built around uh, work, it, it's just, it doesn't do it. Work doesn't produce necessarily these things ultimately. Alright, so first of all, what about satisfaction, right? The, the pursuit for satisfaction through our work. Look at verses uh, 22 and 23 in chapter 2. The writer says this. It says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So even from that, right, in the pursuit of satisfaction, there's three things we see there even there, right? So uh, our work produces, uh, on the inside and on the outside, pain, grief, and, so, uh, and worry. Pain, grief, and worry, or, or a lack of rest because of worry. So pain, grief, and a lack of rest because we're worrying, right? So, so first of all, pain. By this he means there's a, there's, there, we experience pain from the continual pursuit, the, the continual exertion that we push into our work every single day, that we're actually pounding ourselves down, we're beating ourselves down by the constant day in 
and day out grind of work. And, you, and maybe you know this, right, for you. And, and I feel this even this, like, I go through different weeks of this where I feel this, right? And I almost have to, at the end of the week, kind of step back and go, like, why am I feeling this way physically or, or spiritually or emotionally and mentally? Like, why do I feel so worn down? I have to start to kind of prod my heart. And I have to do this with other people sometimes. Why do I feel this way? And, and there's the reality that you're just going to feel that way from working hard sometimes. But sometimes there's something deeper going on there, right? Especially if it's a continual thing, this exertion, right? That work just wears us down, right? Working, getting up day in and day out and grinding it just wears us down. And this is when everything's going well too, right? Now for some of us, some of us could sit here and raise our hand. We could sit here and talk about like things are going well in work. I've gone through seasons where work just is terrible and I hate it and, and it's a grind. But you know what? I'm actually in a good season of work. I feel pretty good about it. I feel pretty good about myself. I feel like I'm making contributions. I feel satisfied. I feel like I've been, there's some recognition around the good that I'm doing in my work, right? But the reality is that work wears us down even when things are going good. Um, there was a survey done uh, a while back, and you've probably heard about these types of surveys, but there was a survey done say, asking people, hey, if you could have a 25th hour in the day, what would you do with that 25th hour? What do you think some of the answers were? Go ahead. Who just said sleep? How many people would really, how many of you got, raise your hand, you said sleep, you're thinking sleep, right? Raise your hand if you were lying and you just, you just want to throw your hand up there and say you were thinking sleep because I put it up there, right? Sleep, right? People said sleep. If I could have a 25th hour, I would sleep, right? Work wears us down, right? Even when it's, it's going well. So people are looking for that extra hour of sleep, right? So, so there's pain, right? The second one is grief or vexation, right? Grief, Why? You can't go to work sometimes without disappointment. There's disappointment in the work that we put in, whatever vocation field that we find ourselves in, in our pursuit of success. In a work-driven life, there's always some sort of standard evaluating you, whether it's a boss, um, whether it's uh, even other employees. You feel the, the, the pressure of other employees that are, that are doing this. It's a company. Maybe it's the stock market for some of you. There's some sort of standard that's uh, evaluating your performance, Right? And we will experience failure or disappointment on some level. We will always experience failure or disappointment on some level, no matter what our vocation field is, right? At some point in the game, we, we face or we experience rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. So uh, if pain, right, so pain, if, th if things are going well, uh, pain if things are going well, grief if things aren't going well. Right? So you, we can experience the pain if things are going well, but we experience grief when things aren't going well. Right? And that's just during the daytime. Right? So look at the third thing. You get to the third thing and he says, you get to the nighttime. Right? There's, there's no rest. There's worry. There's lack of sleep. Right? There's tossing and turning at nighttime. Right? So that's the third thing, worry. So pain, grief, and then you've got no rest because of, of worry. Right? So whether there's decisions to be made, like good or bad, or... or there's uh, pending changes coming or there's curiosity about the future of my, my place in the company or, or my accounts dwindling or, or all these things like the uncertainties of what tomorrow will bring in our field in some way, shape or form create worry, create a lack of rest both physically and internally, right? So there's that, that circulation going on right there that work can create worry. To some degree, every kind of work will involve all these things. Uh, the pain, the grief, and the worry. But here's what the writer is saying. That the writer of Ecclesiastes is essentially saying, the more we build our life on work, the more you and I build our lives on our career or our 
the more we build our life on the pursuit of success and, and what it, success for us, we could deter, determine that in so many ways culturally, like the American dream, you know, the big house, the, the two and a half baths, the cars, the two bay garage, the big white picket fence, uh, living in Andover, living in North Andover, whatever it is, right? Some, and maybe we get that and then success looks different for you. Maybe it's owning a house on the beach. Maybe it's owning a couple houses on the beach. Maybe it's owning a rental product. All these different types of things that we attribute to success, right? So no matter what, if we're building our life on success, the more you're going to experience this kind of brokenness, and that's just on the inside. Right? The more we're building our lives on the pursuit of success, the more we're going to experience the pain and the grief and the worry on the inside. So the first thing we get to ask, the first thing we should always be asking is, is this satisfying? Like, is this satisfying me? And in some senses, right, our work will satisfy us. You, you could say this. I, there are days where I, I walk away and I, I feel good about things I've done, and I feel satisfied. I feel like I've done something good, and I feel satisfied. And I think that's a good thing. That's a good gift from God that we get to experience. So, so satisfaction is not just all bad. The pursuit of satisfaction is not just all bad. But when it becomes the ultimate thing of finding satisfaction through our work or gaining success in some way, Basically what the writer is saying is that's going to brutalize you on the inside. It's going to beat you down. It's going to wear you down. So there's no true satisfaction around a life that's pursuing work, that's revolved around work. The second thing is this. It doesn't bring us recognition. Uh, a life that's built around work or the pursuit of success does not bring us recognition. And I think of all the three, at least for me, right, uh, this can be the worst. This one can be the worst. Uh, this doesn't only uh, leave you feeling like you, you've just been kind of punched around a little bit, but it, it makes you feel absolutely annihilated in some ways, right? It can make you feel annihilated and then isolated in some ways. When you, when you put on the pedestal, uh, I'm going to live a work-driven uh, work life, a career-based life, it can leave you actually isolated. You're seeking recognition. You're seeking accolade in some way. You're seeking, seeking a, a name or a reputation for the good that you're doing, and it can ultimately lead you. And you think that more and more people are going to recognize you, and it might build your, your community in some ways and relationships in some ways, but it actually it's quite opposite. It can leave us isolated, right? Let's jump to chapter 4 for a second. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 4. He says this. You tracking with me so far? Am I losing you? All right. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in unhappy business. Here's the lie of success, the lie of achievement, right? So here's a man who's been successful, right? The writer here, he's, he's been successful he has recognition, but it's not the recognition that he needs, ultimately, or we need, ultimately, right? So for some people, success means money. It means the, the building up of the bank account and having enough, right? And, and there are some fields, and some of us work in these fields, where uh, you don't make as much money as some of the other fields do, right? So you're not building up the bank account at, a, at an astronomical rate like some other people Dude, but one thing that success can always tell us is that it means esteem. Uh, success means uh, recognition, approval, acclaim. Uh, people notice you. People, like, so you could say, people know me. I feel respected. I feel loved because I make the kind of money that I now make so that I can live in this type of neighborhood and put this type of zip code on my envelope and then people will notice me. People will recognize me. Right? So that's success in some ways for us. Right? 
So this is, this is it right here. Or I'm the type of person who has, uh, who's asked to kind of speak at different things. Right? Or I'm the person who's sought after to give counsel or leadership consultation or, or, or encouragement to. I'm brought in, I'm flown in all over the world so that people will bring me in to speak because they, they long to hear from me. Because I have something to offer. My work, my field offers them something. And let me just say, this is right up there for most pastors. Like, big time for me, right? This one hits home for me, right? So, like, the, the idea of, like, hey, Nick would ask me to come speak at a men's breakfast, like, the little sinful side of me goes like, ooh, like, yeah, this is good. This will help build my stock at FCC. <laughs> the guys will like me. The guys will hear about me. The guys will know about me. Maybe they'll want me to do more public speaking, right? <laughs> right? So, or, or, or in your pulpit <clears throat> ministry or whatever, you know? So this is a big one. John would probably say it's not for him because John's perfect, but, but uh, <laughs> right? John preaches, John sings, John works with the second and third. Like, he's just nailing it on all accounts, right? <laughs> right? He's got the all-American hair. You know, did you guys notice he changed his hairdo this week? Right? It's awesome. I love it, man. I love it. But this is, but listen, this is what's downright scary, right? Because you got a man, right? Essentially, here's a man that's all alone, right? He says, right, um, one person has no other, either son or, yet there's no end to all his tones. I was never satisfied, right? So he's, he's saying, like, I, I'm essentially all alone. If recognition is supposed to be the end game, here I am all alone. Why? Because my overworking has alienated all the closest relationships that I'm supposed to have in life. So he's probably alienated his family, right, because he's worked so much, right? So he has no time to invest in his family. Or he hasn't had time to build up any friendships, right, because he's so busy working and traveling all the time and overworking himself to death on the pursuit of success. Or any of the friends that he's actually ever had, he probably alienated at some point because all he does is talk about work and talk about his, his pursuit of success, right? So all his friends don't want to hang out with him. The one thing that I do when I hang out with my friends, and, and a lot of them are, are ministers and vocationally involved in ministry, unfortunately, these days, and I tell my, I lament to my wife, but that's a great thing, but I hate it at the same time. Because you know what winds up happening? Our conversations are revolved around what? Church, ministry, all the time. 20, and I can't, st so I tell my friends now, listen, five minutes, we got a five minute window to kind of catch up on like work stuff, but after that, no, no work stuff. No work talk, no ministry talk, none, sorry, they can't do it. And if they want to do that, then, then I go home, and I'll read a book, and, and I'll be fine, and I'll be happy, right? But here it is. No true satisfaction, no true recognition. He gets recognition from afar from people who don't know him, and so those aren't building up the relationships that he really needs in his life because he's alienated the more important ones for the, for the success of, of recognition and people noticing him or knowing his name. Lastly, contribution. Everybody says to be successful, you want to leave a legacy. You want to do something that counts, that makes a difference. I've been saying this to my wife a lot lately. I want my work to count. I really do. I don't want to show up to a church and, and get paid by FCC and just like, go through the motions and become a career minister. I really, want my, I really do want my work to count for something, to the glory of God. I really do. Not so that I could like, have a name or, or the church could be like, like in the top five of like, Forbes or whatever, like fastest growing church. Like, I don't care about that, but... Like, you really, like, want your, you want your work to count for something, right? You want to be remembered in some way. You want to make a contribution to your field. And here's what Ecclesiastes does. He calls into question a popular cultural belief that work 
and being successful is the way that you make a life for yourself. That, 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 the way, that your work is the way you put a stamp on life. That you, you, you make your mark on life in some way. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out, right? What's going to happen 50 years from now? What's going to happen 100 years from now, right? You're going to leave it to someone else, right? That you don't even know. It could be a wise guy. It could be a fool for all you know, right? But your work and your contribution is going to get left to someone else. For us, right? 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 150 years from now, 500 years from now, no one's going to even remember who we are. No one's going to remember Brian Page or Gary Finlayson or John Paul or David Medeiros. No one's going to remember any of our names or any of the things that we ever, ever did, right? Some people might remember us for a little bit, but either way, we're going to leave it behind, right? And no one's going to essentially remember this. And he says, it doesn't even matter. It could be a wise, it could be a fool. It's all going to be forgotten, right? Eventually, the sun's going to burn everything up, right? So it's not even going to be remembered. There was a, a writing on the, on the, on the, the, the front of an a, a Englishman's grave. I found this this week. And it was a very fam- famous English writer who was trying to leave his mark, right? He was trying to leave a legacy in life. Through what, he, uh, through what he did. And do you know what it said? It, like, it, it kind of haunts me in some ways, right? Do you know what it says? It says this, I only plowed water. I only plowed water. Right? This is the nature of the world. This is the nature of a life built around work, right? You work and you work and you strive and you toil and you grind it day after day to someday only pull your plow up and realize that you've been plowing water. That just for 30 seconds, you know what that plow does in water? It leaves a little bit of a ripple. And then what happens? Back to normal. Back to normal. So essentially, the Ecclesiastes guy is saying, we're plowing water. A life built around work is, or, or pursuing success is really just plowing water. And the more and more we do that, the more and more we pursue success through a life of work, the more meaningless our life actually starts to become. We see the meaninglessness of life and it starts to break through into our work, right? And so we're going to look at why it's not worth it just for a second. Holy crap, that clock goes fast. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So why isn't it worth it? Why are we so broken over our work? Sorry if that offends any of you guys. Sorry. (laughs) There's There's two things the writer shows us, right? Why are we so broken? There's a lack of identity from us, and there's a lack of rest. There's a lack of identity, and there's a lack of rest. One is kind of above the surface, like the above-ground pool, and the other one's like the underground pool, right? So lack of identity and lack of rest. He's saying, trying to show us, the primary reason that we work is because there's something deeply... the, the, The primary reason in our work that we feel this or experience this is because there's something wrong in the human heart, deep down inside. This is why we experience these things that we just kind of described here. So we can work hard, we can make a good product, we can produce good things, we can contribute in certain ways that help the company, but it's actually not the product that we're after, it's actually ourselves that we're actually really after. We're actually trying to not make a name for the product, but we're trying to craft an identity for ourselves. We're pursuing an identity through our work, right? So it's, it's not like that we're always just competing against something, um, we're always trying, let me rephrase that, we're always trying to compete against something or someone else in order to prove ourselves. So in our work, fundamentally, the reason why we overwork, the reason why we pursue success and we, we experience the brokenness of what we experience is because we're trying to craft an identity for ourselves, right? There's always something else that we're trying to prove ourselves to or someone else we're trying to uh, uh, compare ourselves to. 
in some way, shape, or form. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, he said, um, I'm working and I'm living and I'm striving to just basically say I'm better than you or I did a better job than you to someone else in our lives, someone else that's next to us, right? You're always saying, there's always a little voice inside of us that's pushing us saying that you're better than him, you're better than her. You can get that position if you want it. You can, and then you, get that, you can get the next one if you really, really want it. And at the core, it's because we don't have identity. We don't have an identity inside of us. And if we do craft an identity, and it's usually through money or success, what happens? You lose the money, what happens? Life falls apart. Or you lose some sort of like the, the framework of success, or you lose some of the accomplishments in that success, what happens? Your life falls apart. Right? You lose the home, or you lose, you, you lose a lot of your retirement funds, or whatever. Your life, you, it's broken. Because basically, you are your money. Or you are your success, or you are that beach home, or you are that zip code, wherever you're living, or you are that white picket fence, whatever it is. Right? That's essentially your identity, right? And that becomes a living nightmare. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Again, he says, For all his days are full of sorrow, his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So, why do some tend to overwork? Right? It's all about us. It's all about the pursuit of a self-identity. Right? Even if we work just the bare minimum, right? And we put you know, the bare minimum in, we work 40 hours, we put in an honest day's work. Right? There's, there's going to be something missing on the recognition sale because you've got to, in order to build a reputation or get recognition or find satisfaction, you overwork and you put in extra hours and then you alienate your family, alienate your friends, right? All in the pursuit of success, but it's really deeper than that. You're trying to craft an identity. So why, the question is, why do I need to prove myself through work? Why am I driven like this? It's the second thing that Ecclesiastes points out. It's this. There's a lack of rest. There's a lack of quietness, the NIV says, I think. There's a lack of rest. There's a, a, a lack of rest there. Look at uh, chapter 4. Let's bounce back over to chapter 4, playing pinball here. Verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. All right, so what's he saying? So you've got two handfuls of, of work, overloaded with work that will, re will ruin you. Right? So for all the reasons that we just described, if you've been track of me, if you've been able to keep up with my rambling in some way, right? Um, so you've got two handfuls of all of that, and it leads you to what? Ruin. But then, right, there's, a, there's, another, there's another aspect to that. You, you swing all the way to the other side. What happens? I have someone close to me, very, very close to me, and he frustrates me more than anything. It's because this. Um, he worked hard. He put in extra hours. He worked overtime all his life pursuing kind of the good life. He wanted to have a nice home for his family. He wanted to provide for his kids. He wanted to have some of the nice things that people say are important in this culture. And what happened was is he hit a certain age and it hadn't happened and he was more frustrated and more burnt out than ever. You know what he did? He gave up altogether. He quit on work. He just stopped. Just stopped working. Said enough is enough. I've had two handfuls of all of this toil for 35 years and I'm at the point where I just want to blow my head off and I'm done. And he just kind of dropped it all, and he's just kind of living off the state now. Just existing, week by week, day by day, bare minimum, because he just kind of gave up. And you know what that does? That leads to ruin, too. So there's two types of different ruins. There's the two handfuls of toil that the writer describes. But on the flip side, you get so burnt out by the, the overwork and the pursuit of success that you just, at some point, if you don't get that, 
if it doesn't live up to the expectation it says it's going to give you, that God, it lets you down and you give up and you're done. And it leads to ruin. The writer is saying here that it's because there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's no quietness, right? He says better is a handful of the toil but also a handful of quietness. And basically it's just saying this. He says the problem is that there is a deep kind of rest, a deep kind of quietness that's so powerful it can sweeten and calm us and it can make a fresh life even with the other handful of work. So there's this deep, supernatural quietness, rest of the soul that's missing in our work, right? Because we're trying to craft an idea, so we don't have the rest that we did. So he's saying there's something deep down. There's something underneath the surface. There's a restlessness that continues to drive us to prove ourselves or to compare ourselves or to craft an identity, right? My neighbor and I were, were talking the other day and we were lamenting about our neighbor. Our neighbor has, so I live in, so right now I live in Kennebunkport, Maine. So if you know Kennebunkport, Maine, we're talking like, yeah, like the cream of the crop, like most of those homes up there are people's second, third, or fourth, or 25th homes that they own that they barely scratch, you know, each year, right? And so I'm living next to someone who worked on Wall Street and is worth, you know, millions. And we were, what's that? Yeah, about half a mile away. So we were, we were talking with this neighbor and we were looking at this other person's grass, right? So you, this is the type of area where, you know, they pay for those services so that you don't go out there and push them all by yourself, right? And so I'm out there, you know, kind of laboring, doing some stuff, and, and we're talking about the neighbor over there, and he's got some, like, patches of grass that isn't green. It's all dried up. We haven't had a lot of rain up there. And she's like, what a fool, right? She said, "That's me. the grass isn't green, and it's dying over there, and it, and it ruins the neighborhood. And I just I kind of looked at <laughs> I did. I did one of those, like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, so she, she says, it's because the fool didn't install sprinklers to spray down the grass, right? Everyone's got the installed sprinkler system that goes off on a time. So everyone's grass is really, really green. And she says, hey, listen, the fool didn't install sprinklers. That's, that would have been the way to keep it green and looking fresh alive. Fresh and alive. The only way that you and I keep ourselves from work killing us and the pursuit of this success and the, and, the, and, the, and the temptation for the cultural success to kill us is to daily turn the sprinkler on and spray down the soul with this deep rest. It's the, it's the rest that the writer of Hebrews talks about, that there's a rest available for the people of God to enter into. We're all striving, essentially, for our salvation. We know we're not good enough, and we try to place the blame elsewhere. But the problem is, a lot of times, in trying to identify why do we feel overworked, why do we feel stressed, why do I feel like life is letting me down, we don't scratch, we only scratch it, we don't look deep enough. We don't prod deep enough. What we need is a rest from our work in our work. We need that handful of coins. So where does that come from? And let me end with this. I can't get into the other points, but let me just hit this one point. First of all, it's a gift of God. Ecclesiastes talks about that. that like whether you eat and whether you drink and whether you experience the joy that life can bring, the writer Ecclesiastes can say that that's, that's actually a gift from God for you to be able to enjoy that. So first of all, it's not something you earn. The rest that you get, the, that, that quietness of the soul, is not something that we earn and we strive for like we do in our work. We're working and we're working hard and we're putting 90 hours a weekend to earn that success, to pull something out of life, to earn it. It's, it's complete opposite with God. The rest that he offers is a gift. First, it's a gift. But he says this, Jesus, it's, it's the rest. Where does a handful of quietness? It comes from Jesus. It's the rest that Jesus offers. It says, Matthew eleven twenty. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heaven laden and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Come unto me. How do I get that? He says, come unto me. Don't come unto that. Right? 
Come to me, a person. Don't just come to my teachings. Don't just come looking to um, follow my teachings or just merely adhere to my teachings. That comes with it. But first, you've got to come to me, and I'm a person. Jesus is the person. Right? He says, come to me. Read who he is. Read what he's done. Read how he works. Read how he lives. God doesn't necessarily give us this, like, really, really, like, well-put-together argument of why you should believe him, but he gives us this really, 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 really airtight person. He presents this kind of airtight person that we can believe in, that we can come to and receive rest from. Remember when Jesus was so troubled in the garden the night before he was going to die? Remember he was in agony and he's praying. He's saying, I'm troubled in soul. He says, remember when Jesus was in the garden and he's praying and he's in agony? Sorry for you guys in the back if you can't hear me. He's saying, I'm troubled in soul. Jesus is essentially, what's going on there? Jesus is essentially losing his rest. Jesus loses his rest in the garden. He takes our sins upon him so that when we believe in him, God looks at us, right? And he sings over us and he smiles over us. And we, we know that we have his love and we're accepted. We have the recognition from God, the creator himself, that we are his sons, that we haven't earned it, but God has done it through Jesus because Jesus lost his rest so that we, you and I, when we believe in Jesus, could receive the ultimate divine rest that our souls so deeply need. Only Jesus can give us that handful of rest that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about. Right? So, crap, it's 9.17, okay. Let me finish this right here. Everything we do in our, in our work, a lot of times, is because we're trying to do it for something. We're trying to earn something. We're trying to pull something out of life. But you look at Philippians chapter 2. Skip there for one second. We'll wrap on this. And I've got a couple questions for you if we have a few minutes to do it. Philippians 2. Paul says it was Jesus who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. So success, right, with Jesus is something completely different, right? Instead of going to work and trying to pull out of it everything that you can to craft your, uh, your own glory or your own identity or find satisfaction or to earn recognition or to feel like you've left some sort of legacy in the world, it's actually the quite, it's quite opposite. Success in Jesus comes through emptying, not gaining. Comes through releasing and not grasping. Jesus, and because Jesus succeeded for us, when we would never be successful in earning that identity or ever finding true satisfaction or ever doing enough to leave a lasting legacy that would remain throughout the history of time, Jesus did it for us. He did what we really yearn for so that we can come to him. And the invitation is for every single day, right? I need to believe this every single day and enter into his rest every single day so that not only does he secure it for my salvation, but he's also my example so that every single day when I get up to go to work, I can work from that rest as I remind myself of the gospel, that I am continually invited to come to Jesus and to find rest in 
Jesus. That's the power to work this whole thing out. He made the ultimate contribution on the cross that we could be free from striving to achieve a false success that will not last. But his achievement is one that will last forever. And the rest that he offers is one that will make our work, when we do work, way more satisfying in the end than any success that the world offers. All right, so a couple questions. And then I'll let Nick put a wrap on it and just tell me when to pray. Is that cool? Sounds good. Okay. Here's a couple questions for you to wrestle with if you've got a, a little more energy left in you. What would it look like practically to work this out vocationally for you? Like, how could you work this out in your own field? Uh, what changes do you need to make? Anything that you heard me ramble on about the last 35 minutes or so about satisfaction, the pursuit of satisfaction, or, or trying to gain recognition in some way, or, or wanting to leave a legacy, or experiencing the pain and the grief and the worry, um, any of that resonate with you or something else resonate with you, um, what changes do you need to make to those things that kind of pop up uh, in your soul? What area do you tend to, and this kind of goes with it, what area do you tend to find yourself striving hard in? Is it satisfaction? Is it recognition? Is it contribution? And here's the other question. Where do you need to believe the gospel? What area and how can you apply the gospel? Where do you believe the gospel in that area? How does the gospel speak to that? All right? So those are some questions. If you've got some other questions you want to toss around or have some conversation around the table, we'll do that right now, okay? Father, we bow our hearts before you humbly and know that we can only approach you because of Jesus. And so we just yeah, yield for a second, Lord, and just say thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are a holy and just God even though we were so unrighteous and so unable through no matter how much stuff we did to try and earn it, we could never approach you, that our righteousness was like filthy rags, but that yet Jesus and his righteousness and our unity, uniting into him, Lord, uh, now makes us right with you, Lord. Now we stand before you faultless before the throne because of what our, 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 our Savior and our Lord Jesus did. We are so blown away by that grace. And so I pray that that would uh, just continue to resonate in our hearts, Lord. And that even as, uh, as we continue to work this thing out in life, Lord, that we would do it from a place of rest, that we would know we can continue to come to Jesus, that we would invite other brothers into our lives who would remind us about this rest when they see that we are restless. Help us to find our true satisfaction in you. Help us to know that our recognition comes from Jesus and not our own efforts. Help us to point tons of people to that, to that beautiful good news, Lord. So I thank you for the brothers here. Thank you for the men that are faithful to their families, to this church, to your name, to the fame of your name. God, please empower these men. Uh, use them as leaders in different spheres of life. Help them mentor the younger generation and pour into those and disciple those, Lord. Help them uh, mature, be a part of the maturation process and younger guys coming to faith, Lord. I pray these men would be catalysts and they'd be leaders in that discipleship, Lord. So I thank you for their humility. I thank you for their hard work. I thank you for their love of you, Lord. Please bless these men as we journey together this year. We do it for your glory. It's my prayer. I ask you to humbly answer it and answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.